Um, we'll, we'll get started. Um, so glad, glad y'all are here. And I, I just want to share a few comments before handing it over to Dustin. Um, but one of the things I want to share with you guys is just a little bit of like, what are we doing on Friday nights? What are we doing kind of with this monthly equip seminar time? Um, and really the, the hope is to touch on and really equip, um, all of us for, to have a biblical worldview as we engage with cultural issues, as you just kind of walk through life and face whatever it is that, that confronts you day by day, year by year. And so we'll touch on things like philosophy, which obviously tonight's getting very much into philosophy. Um, we'll touch on theology. We'll touch on history, um, culture, just d different things like that. Um, but basically we want to think about if we take all of what scripture says in, in the theology that's presented in scripture, how do we, how do those things kind of usher us towards being able to engage culture well amidst all the different things that we face? And so um, hopefully one of the things you, if you did read the book, um, you know, there's a lot going on underneath the surface um, that, that results in our actions or why we do things, or why we think things. There's a lot of under the surface thinking. And that's what um, this book and other philosophy type things will, will get at. But um, that's, that's kind of what we're doing. We'll, we'll do this um, pretty much once a month. And then um, I just want to say wherever you are, there, there may be some of you that are like, I'm, I'm Mr. Philosophy. Um, I'm Mr. Wolby. I've done a lot in this. And hopefully this will give you growth and encourage you. There may be some of you who you read this book and you're like, Arist Ar who's, who's, you know, who's Aristotle, uh, even on a basic level. And so really whether you're, this is, was all new in this book or whether it was all old, our hope is that as you come month by month that you're going to grow and mature and be equipped and we'll, we'll do that together. Um, and then, so tonight, um, Dustin's going to get really a, an introduction to philosophy from a Christian perspective. And then um, I'll go ahead and let you know. So in October, um, it was going to be September, but we pushed back to October. Um, we're going to talk about this, which is Love Thy Body. Um, and so this is a book by Nancy Piercy. And um, it's really, really good. And I think it'll be a great launching point from what we talk about tonight, kind of taking some of the philosophical um, under the surface stuff. And uh, I'll just read this part real quick. She touches on these categories and like how our philosophy in our culture has, has led to this. But she talks, talks about abortion, euthanasia, sexual hedonism, homosexuality, transsexualism or, and transgenderism. And that's just from a, a little excerpt there, but all of those things, which are very kind of cultural hot topics in many ways, she traces all of them kind of in a philosophical way. So um, this is a bigger book than the one we read for this month. So um, they are back here. If you want to go ahead and get a start on that, um, just so you are aware of that. But um, just encourage y'all uh, engage. Um, Dustin's going to share about this and we'll, we'll have a chance to ask him questions or to discuss with each other tonight. Um, and, and I'll encourage you this too. Don't, don't let this conversation about this book end tonight. Like this is obviously a big part of this book and our conversation on it, but talk with people later tonight, talk with people tomorrow and this week and just continue to engage on some of this stuff uh, that Dustin's going to talk about tonight. So with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to Dustin, uh, but I'm excited to hear from Dustin. I've uh, had the privilege of just getting to sit and have coffee with him. I don't know, several times over the past couple months thinking about some of these kind of things. And I've been really helped myself just from how Dustin thinks about a lot of these things. So let me pray and I'll hand it over to you. 
Father, we give you thanks for this evening, this time that you've given us uh, to talk about philosophy and get into this. I give you thanks for Dustin and his preparation and how you have uh, equipped him for this. Father, would you um, bless this time tonight that you would um, just give us understanding? Father, uh, by your spirit, would you equip us uh, to engage um, our culture, our world, uh, the people around us? Um, Father, give us what is needed and just help us in this discussion. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yes, sir. All right. I don't know if that sounds like it's amplified, doesn't it? Yeah. So earlier it wasn't amplified so much, but um, anyway. So, how many of you really read the book? <laughs> well, the important, the uh, all, all the important stuff is in the first first half of the book, and. Um, it's really sort of unfortunate that the first chapter was what the first chapter was. Um, if this is if, if if this isn't your thing, the first chapter was like, oh, buddy, you know, it's like uh, a couple of guys out on their mind, out of their mind, sitting on a beach somewhere. You know, it's kind of like that. Really got really weird. Um, <laughs> and and it's hard to it's kind of hard to imagine how that sort of stuff applies anyway. Um, hopefully tonight this isn't a whole lot of uh, me just talking to you or at you, but I want it to be interactive. So um, I know we're going to have some time dedicated at the end of the whole thing to ask questions. But if you have questions during during the middle of it, uh, you know, raise your hand and say, "Well, what about this?" or you know, you know, what about that? And um, <clears throat> so hopefully that'll just move a little more naturally. Um, so we are all philosophers, uh, by John Frame. John Frame is, um, well, pretty, pretty famous in the reform camps concerning philosophy and, uh, apologetics somewhat, sort of a, he's a, um, a student of Van Til's and a protege of some other folks that you, you might be aware of, um, and this is the book that we're going to talk about. They're not all necessarily, you know, I didn't, I didn't write this book. These aren't all Dustin Clark's ideas, um, but I'm going to try to summarize uh, Dr. Frame's ideas for you as best I can. <clears throat> and um, one, of, one of the helpful things in the back of the book were all the letters that he has responded to. And I don't know sort of what sort of, what kind of time period that was, but he, he found them to be examples of questions that people might have asked him concerning his former uh, or some of his earlier writings. And so, you know, if you, if you get a chance at some point, look through those letters in the back and you may find a question that you kind of had and say, you know, how does John Frame answer this? Um, because I'm probably not gonna be able to answer questions the same way Dr. Frame would here tonight. But, uh, anyway, good for you guys who got through the first chapter. <laughs> um, so if you look at your, look at your handout here, I'll, I'll try to follow this as best I can. <clears throat> uh, why should I care? Why should you care? You know, I don't know. Maybe you don't. Maybe, uh, maybe you just got drug here tonight. 
Maybe you're just moral support for me tonight. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you think uh, I couldn't care less about this whole thing. So, but um, anybody here have a spleen? Yeah, probably most of you guys. Some, some may not, but most of you probably do. You probably don't think a whole lot about that, but you'd miss it if it was gone. Um, <laughs> And so philosophy and worldview issues are, are a lot like that. They're under the surface and, you know, we use them every day, whether you think about it in those terms or you don't, but we have categories of thought. We have ways of <clears throat> deciding things. Um, and we have systems for, for doing those things. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes um, we run into folks who don't share those same systems of thought that, that we have and we, we clash and we don't really know why. It's just they're stupid and won't listen, um, you know, and that's what, that's the kind of stuff I get at home all the time. But I'm just joking. <laughs> but, um, so it, the, the, the better we understand ourselves and how we think and possibly where other people are coming from, um, maybe these conversations could be more fruitful in the future. And um, so we have, we have a Christian duty to, to think rightly. Um, and, you know, a, a, a major portion of Christianity is having having right information and thinking rightly um, about that. Uh, I wrote several verses down on there. Um, I usually like to list a lot of verses rather than pick just one or two because I want you to know that it runs throughout Scripture. It's not just a, a single command that's in there somewhere. But you know, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. <clears throat> Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Um, Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Um, so this has certainly been um, a major theme amongst God's people uh, ever from since the beginning. Lastly, whether you realize it or not, and you, you, you probably do as messaging becomes more and more blatant um, in our time, but we, we receive messages all the time um, from everywhere. Um, various forms of media, you know, books, movies, social media, billboards, going down the street, newspapers, if you still read those, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. And <clears throat> I thought it would be um, interesting to, to ask, uh, how many of you know these things? Um, I looked up about 20 of the most popular 
taglines in commercials um, over the past couple of decades. But can can anybody finish these these things? So, so what is L'Oreal, the the makeup company? What's what's their tagline? Nobody. <laughs> because you're worth it. Because you're worth it, right? Um, so, so, I don't, what is it, and and how are how are you worth it? Um, how about State Farm? You'll know this one. Uh-huh. Yeah, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Um, well, where is where is there? That's a good question. Uh, well, what is what is good? You know, who's your neighbor? Um, <clears throat> how about Walmart? You know this one. <laughs> well, they have they have the relevant save money, live better, right? Okay. Um, so how about subways? Eat fresh. Eat fresh. <laughs> Why? Why? All right. There's uh, no explanation. Just do it. And and in fact, what about Nike? What about Nike? Just do it. Just what? Just do what? I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. But the point being, you know, I mean, we get these messages all the time, and they probably influence us more than more than we would like to admit that they do. Um, but so so we need to think in those terms and and ask those particular questions. So if we look next, the goals of the discussion tonight, um, we're gonna talk about these seven particular questions in, that Dr. Frame raises, um, but we all have answers to these questions. You know, Again, whether it's something that we've thought about and, and really kind of teased out, what are, what are specifically my answers to these questions or not, um, Non-Christians have answers to these questions. You, you have to have answers to these questions in order to operate as a human being. And uh, so everyone has them. We, we need to begin to understand and articulate uh, the answers to these questions for ourselves that we have. So why do we, why do we eat fresh? You know, I don't know, is that, is that important? Um, and we'll take a look at, as Dr. Frame does, some of the more um, popular cultural and historical answers uh, to these questions. And then we'll, we'll look at the biblical, what Dr. Frame represents as, as, much as, as much as he represents the biblical answers to these questions. Um, lastly, and maybe the most important goal of the, of the whole discussion tonight is to begin to, to ask a few things um, of ourselves and to begin to ask others with whom we have conversations. Uh, we should be asking why, you know, so why is it, why is it you think that way? Why is it I think that way? Um, how do you know, or how did you, how did you reach that conclusion? How do I know? How did, how did I reach the conclusion that I have for the answer that I'm giving? Um, and I left this one off there, but this one is, is probably equally important is 
to, to define the terms that we're talking about. So um, two people can be assuming they're talking about the same thing uh, when really they have different definitions of that particular object that they might be describing. Love, for example, you know, maybe, maybe you mean something different by love than, than what one of you folks means by love. And, and we're talking about, well, you need to love people. I am loving people. No, you're not. And, you know, some, some clarity could be brought to the whole conversation just by asking, well, what, how do we define this? How do we define that term? <clears throat> so anyway, those are the, that's the big take home point. And I hope that uh, that sticks with you. The seven questions Dr. Frame asks, uh, chapter one, what is everything made of? Uh, in, in philosophy, the, the big word. So the, the big words for these things are listed on the right. That's meta, metaphysics. What is reality? Um, number two, do I have free will? Uh, that's an anthropological question about <clears throat> how philosophers um, would, would say what, what man is and what the capabilities of man are. Can I know the world? Uh, how, do you, how do we know truth? That's epistemology um, in the realm of philosophy. That's what we'd call that. Does God exist? Well, that's, a, that's the idea of theology. And um, we all have to answer that question. How shall I live as, as well as what are my rights? So five and six kind of go together in the same broader category of ethics. You know? So what is appropriate behavior? And um, you know, is it binding on everybody? And you know, how, do we, how do we deal with that sort of stuff? And lastly, how can I be saved? That's um, an idea of, of soteriology. But, um, and you may think, well, how about non-Christian views of the world? Do they really have an idea of soteriology or how can I be saved? But the reality is, is that I've, I've yet to come across in my own experience, someone who didn't think that the world was messed up in some way. And if plan X was just followed, then the world would be a great place, a great place to, to be. And, you know, whatever your background or whatever your, your particular philosophy is, you generally have to answer, answer that question in, in one way or another. <clears throat> so chapter one, um, again, if, if I had been editing this book, I would have put this as the last chapter. <laughs> but it, it is kind of interesting if you, if you, read, if you read these chapters, one is the longest, two's a little shorter, three's a little shorter. They kind of get subsequently shorter and shorter, but I think the more interesting questions come um, at the end rather than, than at the beginning. Um, one of the points to be made, though, is a, a complete philosophy takes into account all of these things. So epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, anthropology, soteriology, all those things fit together. Um, and sometimes, you know, having some view of how we know things, how you know the truth or what is the truth, um, puts restrictions on, you know, what, 
what can metaphysics, what can reality actually be for you in a system like that? So, so it's not that they're unrelated completely. Um, perhaps Dr. Frame is really into metaphysics. I, I don't know. And this was his favorite chapter, but people, people who study this stuff tend to tend to pick out one of these categories and, and really hone in on that. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Um, it is very confusing um, and can, can bog down this presentation um, quite a bit. Yeah, Glass. I mean, this is, this is talking about the one and many problem. Mm -hmm. But what exactly that problem is? Okay. You know, so, um, I'm trying to understand one and many problem. Why? All right, so I don't, is this being recorded for later use or? Okay, so I'll, I'll try to repeat the questions as I get them as people may not hear them. Um, yeah, so Goliath, you're, you're asking, what is, the, what is the problem of the one and the many? Um, traditionally, uh, Western philosophy especially has, has fallen into one of two camps in that situation. Either everything boils down, when you take all of reality, there's this one ultimate substance, whatever that is, that, that makes it all up. So ultimately, it's sort of a, it's almost a pantheism in its, in its nature. Um, everything is made up of this one thing. And if it was all made up of God, then it would be pantheism. We would, we would call it that. Um, but Thales' metaphysical water, you know, that was kind of the first guy that Dr. Frame talks about. He only had a few elements available to him, fire, water, wind, earth. Water was, you know... We had a 25% chance or whatever. So, um, you know, he picks water and everything's going to be water. Uh, you know, ultimately, if we, could, if we could scrape everything away and get to the, to the, the essential, to the essence of what reality is, it's water. But it's not water like you go in the bathroom and wash your hands with, you know, it's this sort of metaphorical water that stands for something that makes up everything. Well, so there's that. So that's the, the problem of the one. Um, and even, even, even in modern times. So we have, you know, we have microscopes and electron microscopes and we can see smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so even the point that um, Dr. Frame brings up about string theory, everything's made of these vibrating strings. That's what the essence of reality is. And Dr. Frame asked the question, well, what are those made of? And um, so it's really sort of unending in that way. <clears throat> also, you know, if everything is only one thing, uh, then how is anything different from anything else, ultimately? Um, so that's the, that's the problem of the one. The problem of the many is that there were some philosophers who eventually came along and said, no, that's, that's getting really kind of wacky. So. You, you really kind of need to understand everything in total and how it all fits together. And really what we have is how, sort of a oneness of the universe, but, but how well we can recognize that things are different, but yet they all sort of fit into this overarching big picture view of, of something. And so you have these guys who say, well, really, you can't know anything until you know everything. 
And so it doesn't make a lot of sense to just keep cutting things up smaller and smaller and smaller and trying to figure out what everything is because maybe it's not like that anyway. And, and you're going in the wrong direction. Instead of looking smaller, 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 you need to look bigger, 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 bigger until you can see the whole picture for, for what it is. And uh, so that's been, a, that's been a big philosophical debate in metaphysics for a long time, the, the one versus the many. Dr. Frame's answer to this, or his suggestion to this, is that in Christianity, we have a Trinitarian view of God, God who is ultimate reality, um, but exists in three persons. So one essence, three persons. And that's, uh, you know, that really is a solution for, for the problem of, of the one and the many. Um, so anyway, good question, but like I said, it's, it's all really kind of strange, uh, <laughs> you know, and like I said, if this is your first foray into philosophy, I can imagine folks looking at that first chapter and just saying, yeah, this is why I never took this in <laughs> college or whatever else, you know. Um, so, and I don't want to have to repeat too much, but even for us here, the, the when we say problem in philosophy, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem and that problem must be solved. It's in the mind of the individual who's philosophically trying to understand the way things work. Do I go out to understand the many so there's meaning to the moment, or do I go into the one so that I can understand how we're all connected? So the problem is not necessarily the math problem. Mm -hmm. Is that, I'm just making sure I understand it. Yeah, it's not. What's the problem? Yeah, it's a, these are solutions yeah, so the solutions to the problems aren't the same as, as math. We can't, <laughs> we can't, we can't check your work. We can't go back and say, uh, you know, let's look at how you came to this. Well, I just like there a lot. But you have to posit that, okay, there must be something that is characterizes that one thing that underlies everything. So it's, it's something that we bring into our, our problem, correct? Um, well, like, okay, there are 10 people in this room, mm -hmm. 20 people in this room, they're all different. Uh, but we have, uh, okay, but we posit there must be something that is um, similar or characterize all of them, right? This is something that we bring in as Right, so, so we understand, we understand that things are different, yet there has to be some underlying characteristic which allows us to recognize it in the first place. Mm -hmm. That, all right, so humanness, let's, let's use that, or yeah. humanity. Yeah. However many people there are in this room, we're all different, um, extremely different, yet somehow we are still all made up of the same materials. Um, Many of us have mostly the same processes going on in our bodies that keep us alive. So yeah, there is sameness to particular things, but there's also individuality um, that allows me to recognize Jim is not Goliath and Goliath is not Jim, but I still know that both of you are human beings. And that's a little, so Aristotle kind of, was was involved in in some of that and talking about forms and you know in aristotle's world there was this sort of heavenly world where the perfect forms exists existed um so that 
and, and forms of things are sort of innate knowledge that we're born with so that you know, you can recognize lots of different things in this room that are furniture, but you know they're different somehow, but they're all furniture and they have a particular purpose. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, really understanding the world is, uh, I mean, understanding the world is a, is a, is a human limitation that, that we have. And so we're gonna bring particular ideas into that. But, Sorry, so this, hmm? is, this is our mind looking at the world and wondering, and coming up with this problem. Am I right to say? Um, yeah. What's that? AJ? It's, it's, not just a, it's not just our mental, it, like what is fundamental reality? Because all the, everything is water, we're saying it's not just our mind trying to put something <coughs> on it, we're saying everything ultimately in its fundamental metaphysic is water. Right, but yet we know there are differences. But are those perceived differences or right. that kind of thing? So it's like it's not just something we bring to it, it's actually a, trying to determine what is the basic constituent of the universe. Is it plurality or is it unity? Is it one of many? Yeah, um, that's, that's a good summation of it. Ultimately, though, it's not one of these things that we give a whole lot of thought to. You know, we don't. The alarm clock goes off in the morning, and you wake up, and you're like, "Ah, what is ultimate reality? <laughs> like, I'm not going to be able to do my job today. I can't. I don't even know if this floor is real. Am I just going to step down through it? Am I? Do I only exist in the dream of some giant somewhere? I, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I. <laughs> I've thought a lot about these things and it's, it's really kind of weird. You know, the, you can, if, if you've ever seen the movie, The Matrix, you know, you can kind of reference a lot of, a lot of stuff about what is reality to this, you know, because eventually Neo understands that there's a different reality that exists from the one he's been participating in. And, um, real mind bender kind of thing. Anyway, let's move on to some, some, Hopefully some more interesting questions. Uh, number, number two, uh, do I, <coughs> pardon me, do I have free will? What would you, uh, so what's your initial response to, to that? Do I have free will? Krista has an answer, okay. Well, we all have an answer. I don't know if you want to give it or not, but everybody has an answer. <coughs> <laughs> All right, so did you want to say something? I'm sorry. I was just going to embarrass myself and say it's the hardest thing to make your uh, <laughs> Well, you're in good company. Um, so this is one of those questions where we have to ask, well, what do you mean by that? You know, let's define terms then. Um, Dr. Frame spends a while in, in this chapter talking about uh, a libertarian version of freedom. And that's not, you know, that's not the don't tread on me flag and uh, voting for Ron Paul libertarian. This is, this is libertarianism in the sense of you don't really have free will if there are 
if there's anything causing you to make a particular choice. And the most extreme version of these people would say even your own desires, if they make you choose one thing over the other, then you're not really free. Which, I mean, it's kind of weird to, to wrap your mind around that one because it seems like, well, if I'm able to, if I'm able to choose what I desire, then I am free. Um, but, you know, he, gives the, he, go, he goes through the chapter and gives the idea of the guy's arm going up in class. And, you know, so if you want to answer the question and you raise your arm, then you're not really free because you wanted to answer the question. <laughs> but if it's just randomly kind of firing up and down, <laughs> then, then that's freedom somehow. I don't, I don't know. But I think, I think when, you, when you give it much thought at all, you begin to see that we're not really as free as we might think we are, think we are. I mean, we're faced with decisions that we have to make all the time. Um, small decisions, big decisions, whatever else. And, and hopefully the, the, the bigger the decisions are, we kind of begin to think about them more deeply. And we think about the consequences of what those decisions may be. We might think about the resources that we have to make a particular decision. Um, we might think about, am I making this decision because I feel pressured from the outside by someone or some group or something to make a particular decision? <clears throat> and, you know, you kind of have to begin to admit, well, I'm not completely free. There are lots of, there are lots of roadblocks and lots of challenges that lay out there for me that prevent me from making one decision or another. Um, you know, we're, we, so we play a lot of basketball at home. Uh, it's an adjustable goal, so it can go up and down. But, you know, when it's really on 10 feet, I would love to go out there and dunk the thing, you know. But <laughs> no matter if I decide that's what I'm going to do or not, there are limitations that keep me from doing so. And it's, you know, it's not getting any better the older I get. So... Um, <clears throat> but, but that's the, that's the reality of the situation, you know, um, just, just knowing some of you here and knowing the activities you'd like to engage in, I mean, you know, maybe Jim, you would like to win the Boston Marathon. Maybe, maybe that's a dream you've always had. <laughs> You're, you are free to try, but, but you know, I mean, there are lots of things that may, that may be standing in the way for you. And um, so, <clears throat> but also, on the other hand, you have to think about, well, you know, what, what Dr. Frame says, causality doesn't, doesn't have to be a barrier to freedom. Um, you know, we, we still have choices that we make. And when it, when it comes down to it, you know, human behavior is about, about making the choice that you most desire at the given moment. And um, even under states of extreme coercion, say threat of violence or death to you or a loved one, you can still pick what you want. Um, Although, if you pick contrary to what you're being coerced toward, that may mean that there are some very painful consequences. 
Um, but still, in that moment, you do what you want to do. <clears throat> and so, you know, the, the Bible certainly talks about human choice and how it can't be disconnected from human nature. And so biblically, we understand that man, as he is born, is under the curse of sin. And <clears throat> we don't have... We don't have the ability to choose good in that state, um, apart from apart from regeneration. What kind of free will did we have prior to the fall? Yeah. Um, that's a that's well, that's a pretty deep, <laughs> pretty pretty deep question. So who who's the author who wrote the fourfold state of man? Um, Puritan author, I I can't remember, but um, anyway, it's man before the fall. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, man before the fall was the was the shortest portion of that because it didn't last all that long. <laughs> um, and um, right, so. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, again, I'm, I'm trying to stick with, with what Dr. Frame's answers to these questions are. I, I, would, I would probably disagree with Frame somewhat on, on this, not, not, a, not a whole lot. But. Well, I would say it's not too if you take libertarian free will to mean that even your own desires causing you to make a choice means you're not free. Um, I mean, certainly Adam and Eve had desires, and, and they made choices based on those based on those well, desires. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah, there there were boundaries. <coughs> but then. Um, Dr. Frame quickly moves into the age-old discussion of the problem of evil, um, which again, this this may or may not really be a problem. It may just be may just depend on how we look at it. Um, from a from a secular humanist standpoint, um, that's sort of the the most difficult thing for Christians seemingly to answer. Well, if your God is good and your God is all powerful, then why do we have evil here in the world? And certainly many Christian scholars over the millennia have tried to answer this question in one way or another. Um, most of them, it, it's incomplete in some ways um, because I don't know that we can ever fully know the whole story. Um, and, you know, even Dr. Frame, um, as he says in his chapter, God causes evil, there's still a, a mystery, a mysterious point that um, we don't have insight into, you know, and, and there are things that God hasn't revealed to us, um, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us that, you know, the secret things belong to the Lord, but there are things that he's given to us that belong to us and our children, and so we may, we may never know. Um, how it how it all fits together, um, but you know he does 
he, he hits on Romans chapter 9 pretty hard um, in his book. And if you're familiar with Romans chapter 9, then you know Paul is answering anticipated questions from his audience members. And eventually he's just kind of like, well, who are you to talk back to God? You know, um, and that's one of the one of the things that I don't think we always understand is that God is not just a better version of us. Right? He's not a superhuman in some way. God is God, totally other than we are. He has communicated particular attributes to us so that we reflect His image. Uh, but that's it. Simply reflections. Um, I can't remember which psalm it says, but God says, oh, you thought I was altogether like you. Um, and it's an accusation, you know. You thought, you thought wrongly. I'm not just a better version of you. I am God. And by definition, what I do is good. So if God is the plumb line, there's, we can't put anything above God to judge what it is God does. Definitionally, anything God does is good. And uh, for most of us, um, that, that hits at us, <laughs> you know, down deep and kind of like, yeah, but I don't always like what you do. Um, and and that's, that's true, we don't. But insofar as we find a uh, Spurgeon has a has a a neat quote. Uh, in in so far as we find something in Scripture that disagrees with us, uh, essentially we should humble ourselves to the Scripture uh, because it's us that are wrong, uh, not the Scripture. Um, and so it 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 is. It's a problem, um, problem kind of in air quotes, but um, you know, there are many systems that don't even have a right to call anything evil. So they have a much bigger problem than, than we do in a lot of ways. Any, anything else you, that brings up that you wanna talk about particularly while we're here at this point? Yeah, Ben. Criticize, say, 
homosexuality or trans transgenderism because that is inherently who they are. Mm -hmm. That can't be changed. And so it is wrong and evil of you to say that they should change or that they should not act upon impulses or, or desires because that's inherently who they are and that can't be changed. And, and I think we, we face actually a very deterministic culture in various ways. I think as Christians, one thing we should be better to embrace is that we have freedom. Um, obviously, before believers, we, we you know, preface that with, in sin, we are slaves. But in Christ, we should equally then say, but in Christ, we are free. Um, that we're free, that despite whatever tendency or inclination to sin we may have, um, that is not... Um, that does not prescribe the word of God, we are free in Christ to put to death that sin. But that would imply that you were telling them that they can change, they can, they are able to change their orientation, right? Because, I, yeah. it's, the, it's at the very least the point <coughs> that you can change your actions through Christ. Now, I think you have to always practice it. That's in, in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But that change is possible at the very least in action. I think it's a deeper question about the idea. Well, what I'm hearing you say then is that the determinism of the world around us, it would help in our conversations apologetically or even philosophically if we help people understand that they are they find the determinism often that they would associate with Christianity to be anathema. But in latent in a lot of the Asian culture is a determinism that they're leading into is what I mean. So without, and I'm, we'll talk about sexuality when we get to Pierce's book, but that's, I think, what you're saying, right? Yeah, that's an incredibly yeah, and, and I guess the, the the sort of underlying structure of the of the whole conversation is determinism, meaning that all things are determined. You don't have a choice in any matter, uh, but it's all predetermined or, or whatever else uh, versus libertarian free will versus compatibilism in, in some ways that um, you know, we make choices, but God's still sovereign, and somehow there's this compatibility that works out between the two. And so those are, those are kind of the, 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 the main choices that you have. I mean, the problem with, with anyone who speaks of determinism, the problem with um, you know, secular humanism or particular sexual ethics or whatever else is, you know, if, if this is me and this is how I am, am determined to be and I have no other choice in the matter, then it becomes really very difficult to criticize anyone else for saying, well, this is me and, you know, I'm like this and, you know, and, um, right. So, so, you know, the, the chemicals in my mind are forcing me to think that you shouldn't do those things. And the chemical reactions in your mind are forcing you to think that I'm a bigot for thinking like that.
But they want the libertarianism about what they can do in the future, but the determinism to excuse what they uh, were in the past. And that, I mean, I, I can understand, I see what you're saying. When we first, when we, when I first became reformed, I guess you could say, um, I kind of went from this like huge you know, swing to like, what's it matter? You know, <laughs> that doesn't matter. <laughs> and that's that's fatalism. So so nothing matters. You know everything's going to happen no matter what. So let, let me just, I want to throw one more wrinkle into this whole situation. I, and I'm not going to answer the question, but I'm just going to throw it out there for, um, <laughs> for further thought. You know, is it that we have a presupposition that tells us responsibility is inextricably linked to freedom? So must one be free in order to be responsible or to be held accountable? Um, you know, and so, so that's, that's one of those things that, that sometimes is under the surface when we, when we think about this is, oh, well, and it's never stated is that, oh, well, accountability requires freedom. Um, but then you'll say to me, who then can resist his will? Um, you know, shall the... Bible, pardon me, we are responsible. And that's, that's as much as how I can answer that. Actually. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that that is something to consider. Does do, do we link freedom and responsibility in a way that perhaps Scripture does not? So since we're talking about the way we think, mm -hmm. if I can link the first two questions together. So the first question is metaphysical. What is everything made of? And you see the problem of the, of the one is to reduce it down to what is that, right? That thing that makes all of us. Second question essentially was epistemology, right? Or no, anthropology, excuse me. Do I have a free will? What is, what is being? And it's amazing to think about how our culture is reduced down to I am human because I have a free will, as opposed to I am human because I've been created in the image of God, the biblical description of it. 
And so I find that just as we were talking, the, the same problem, the one versus the many, presents itself not in regards to metaphysics, but in regards to anthropology in the second question, when we get immediately to the heart of, of man's free. Isn't that epistemology issue? Potentially. Yes. Um, my, my point is simply this issue in our culture to reduce it down to free. Mm -hmm. As the dominant descriptive anything that shakes up me not having freedom seems to be robbing me of my community. Therefore, God presents himself as scriptures of sovereign. Yeah, and um, and you know, this that's that's something that is more unique to American culture than it is to other other places in the world. I mean, you know, we have a we place a big emphasis on individualism here, where some cultures, for whatever reason, have a more of a collectivist thought. You know, that's a more of a groupthink rather than what's best for the individual, but what's best for the group. And um, you know, those things play into the into how we answer that question too. Yeah. I think even as you ask this question, one thing that, that comes to my mind is I hear arguments from one side, well, this is how I was born, this is how I was made, and then on, on, in the same breath, in the same word, this is my choice. I get to make this choice. This is my choice. And I was just thinking, no culture, no group of people is a monolith. Like some people are going to say, I, I am constrained by this. It's who I am. Other people are going to say, I chose this. It's who I choose to be. And it feels like like if you ever want to ask someone to do something and they really don't want to do it, but they just keep saying different answers of why they don't want to do it, instead of just saying, I don't want to do, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be who God made me to be. It's kind of the thing, but you'll use slippery. Like, I don't know why we are surprised by the contradiction of a worldview that doesn't, is it biblical? Like, they hate God and they may not see that they hate God, but they, they hate God. And so, Whatever way you're trying to pin them down, they're going to answer it the other way. I guess. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's no. They don't, there, there's no consistency. Ultimately, if you take any of these viewpoints that aren't biblical, if you drive them to the bottom, they're not consistent. And consistency can only be found through the one and the many being answered. This is very simple, but I'm simple. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, my. 15-year-old had a friend who's getting a picture today of a shirt he saw on Amazon that says there are more than there's more than one gender. It had like the, you know, the rainbow flag. And in the drop-down bar for ordering it had two sizes, men's, women's. <laughs> and you know, it was like these two 15-year-olds having this discussion about it. Like that is completely inconsistent. I mean it's just a t-shirt, but you know, I mean that's it just comes from a worldview that's like Completely inconsistent. Yeah. Well, we're, we'll get there. <laughs> but but um, uh, but but that that uh, so one important takeaway from 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 that aspect of the conversation is that we need to try to be as consistent as possible within our own framework um, as we can be, and when we're not, we need to question where is it that we've gone wrong. All right, well, let's move on to chapter three, Can I Know the World? Um, and this is, this is the epistemology question. How can, how can I know anything? 
Um, and um, again, you have a lot of, there, there are many Christian writers who kind of, this seems to be their, their realm epistemology and they kind of set this above and over everything else. But I don't, I don't necessarily know that that's how it goes. Like I said at the beginning, all these things fit together. But it is an important question of, you know, how do we, how do we know anything? You know, um, how do, like I said, how do, we, back to the metaphysical question too, is an epistemological question is, how do I know that I'm not really locked up in a psychiatric ward somewhere and I'm having this crazy hallucination where you people are here and I'm doing this, you know, and I'm wishing I could have hallucinated something better. Um, but this is all I have, apparently. Um, you know, and so historically, and especially in Western thought, again, um, knowledge has, has meant that we have justified true beliefs. And so to know anything at all, at first you need to have a belief about something, right? AJ's shirt is yellow, kind of yellowish. <laughs> it's not the same yellow as Goliath's shirt. Um, all right, so I, I have a have a belief about about something, and you know, my my belief may be true, it may be false. Um, I might have a true belief based on a false justification. And, you know, Dr. Frame gives the idea of the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series in 1960. And he gives the example that, well, maybe I just think the Pittsburgh Pirates are the best baseball team ever. And so they've won all the World Series and that includes 1960. It might happen to be that I'm right about that situation, but we couldn't, we wouldn't really call it knowledge. That would be more of a lucky guess of some sorts um, because we don't have justification for that. And then here's where the, the conversation gets really interesting is the justification portion of it. Justification becomes a moral issue uh, rather than one of knowledge necessarily because we have to pick something that's authoritative and um, in order to, to base our beliefs on what it is that, you know, whatever that belief happens to be. <clears throat> and that's a question of, of should. Uh, he briefly mentions David Hume in, the, in, in his talk. David Hume um, understood that there was a big difference between what is the way things are, uh, the facts of the matter, and what ought to be, or the way things should be. And so, um, and he understood that you can't bridge that gap. You can't go between what is and what should be. So you can't draw what should be's or ought out of just what is. And, um, so Frame then applies that to justification of, of our knowledge. So if you say to me, you know, I believe X because the Bible says so, well, you've just given me an ultimate authority 
then you're appealing to this ultimate authority, uh, the Bible. All right, so the Bible says it, then it has to be true. Well, someone might say to you, um, you know, I know truth because of my senses. You know, I only believe what I can see, what I can hear, taste, smell, touch, those sorts of things, or, or any extensions, any technological extensions of those senses that we might have, microscopes, telescopes, um, you know, all sorts of laboratory equipment. It all comes down to the idea of, I, be, I believe my senses because I believe that they are reliable and I believe that that's a way of finding truth. Um, and so, so then that would be the justification for, you know, perhaps a, a statement that you make. That the true belief must be justified in itself is, needs a prior faith commitment. Yes. So everything has to start with faith before it's true. So, so if I said that is my child, mm -hmm. I ought to take care of him. The fact that it is my child is knowledge. It's knowledge, sure. The fact that I ought to take care of my child has got to be because I've subscribed to an authority at some level to dictate that ought comes based on that knowledge. Yeah, but you've also subscribed to some authority to even know that's your child in, in the first place. So is it your child because, is that your child because you were in the room when the child was born and, and you saw it happen? So, so is, are your own sense perceptions the authority in that situation? But this is the fact of why we're doing this though. And it's because the patience required as well as the discernment required to have conversations with the world that really contradictory. Yeah. To just ask a loving missionary type question as a missionary, because our goal is always to convince people of the glory of God and His way of rescue. It's not just to expose them as idiots, right? It's exactly. I mean. That's the goal. But, like, what an amazing amount of levels we can drop down to to ask that next question. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, but for God's grace, that's us too. Right? So, you know, I mean, we have no. We, we have no justification to get angry with folks or want to beat them down or say, I only want to win this argument just to show you that, you know, what a big brain I have or whatever else. I mean, that's not, that's not the point of apologetic conversations anyway, or should, shouldn't be the point. Um, I, I see it happen, but that shouldn't be the point. But yes, just the fact that that is your child does not imply anything about your obligation. <laughs> um, but yeah, just just remember when when we're talking about epistemology, so how you know things and how people know things is that um, we have to make an appeal to some authority, um, and that authority might might even be yourself. You know, well, how do you know it? Well, that's just how I feel. So, okay. Okay, you know, and then maybe that's as far as it goes. But you um, have to lovingly ask the person to back step for us what authority are they basing their assessment on. That's a phenomenally helpful way to understand the neighbor. They may not know. And it's not, you know, these questions can be asked in, in a relatively non-threatening manner, sure. too. Right? It's like, oh, that's an interesting idea. How do you, how do you know something like that? Um, 
help, help me understand it. Um, but yeah, so we, we, we see that the acquisition of knowledge um, from, from frames, from frames description is a, is a moral distinctive ultimately. Um, and, and he gives, he gives the example of Romans chapter one, um, specifically 18 through 32, I think, where he talks about, you know, there is an innate sense of God that we all have. Um, and mankind over, over time has suppressed, suppressed this knowledge. Um, and that's a, that's a, a moral issue. All right, next chapter, chapter four, does God exist? Um, you know, if you're an atheist or not, you still answer the question, does God exist? No. Okay, well, you, that's still, it's part of your framework, part of your worldview, you know, either there, God is there or he's not. If you say, if you answer in the affirmative, yes, then you kind of, then have to build some idea of who or what is God in your, in your framework. Um, but, you know, all of, all the, um, <coughs> the early philosophers, the, the Greeks themselves had appeals to some God or gods of some sort. And, even for Aristotle, it was weird. You know, I mean, it was kind of a prime mover. Um, and so those folks who didn't think that the universe was eternal, but it got a be had a beginning somewhere, then they understood there must have been a somebody who threw the switch. Um, and whoever or whatever that was, that's, that was God. And that was kind of Thomas Aquinas' approach um, around the 1,000. Knowing whether or not God exists, or you're asking, was there a prime mover, an uncaused right. cause, or this, this way of reasoning only brings us to a theistic uh, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't tell us okay whether it's this kind of God, that kind of God, or but yeah, it doesn't bring us to this trying Exactly, and um, so so you'll see folks who who make an apologetic appeal to theism in general yeah. rather than Christian theism. Um, but you know, that, that particular theism could fit many different systems of thought. Um, but that's generally only intended for, for one audience and that, that audience of secular, secular humanism or atheism. Um, as Christians, I, I think we, we should argue for the God of as the God in the Bible as he presents himself in scripture. Um, and um, I, I thought that the, the interesting quote there was uh, AJ put it in at the bottom of your page five, but philosophy as practiced. And, and so, so understand the context in that he frame has already said that philosophy tries to seek a godlike knowledge of the universe this omniscience in a way and then he goes on to say philosophy is practiced by the greeks and many non-christians over the centuries is not the innocent wonder of a child trying to probe the wonderful mysteries of his world 
Rather, it is the guilt of Adam and Eve trying to escape God's gaze after they have determined to violate his commands. Um, he makes appeals to Romans chapter 1, again, in, this, in, in chapter 4 of the book, again, which is another moral issue that people have suppressed the knowledge of the one true God and replaced him in favor of other things. All right, chapter five, how shall I live? Um, Dr. Frame gives us three broad views of, of ethics or systems of ethics. Um, I don't even know if systems is the right word, almost three scaffolds upon which ethics might be built. Um, teleological ethics, <coughs> uh, which say, which is talking about design. So we should behave in a certain way in order to reach a certain goal. All right, um, you know, if, if you're, on, um, you're on a sports team and your goal is to win the championship at the end of the season, well, that's gonna imply that you do certain things. And so un under that system, the moral thing for you to do is get up early in the morning when the rest of the team gets up early in the morning and goes and runs three miles and, you know, and be there for practice in the afternoons and work as hard as you can and hit the weight room and eat right and don't be out partying and, uh, you know, whatever else might get in the way. But if you have a, a particular goal in mind and that's what is driving how you are to behave, then whatever it takes to reach that goal is definitionally moral or good. So, so that's the, that's the good that happens. You know, if you're, if your goal is world domination by elimination of particular ethnic groups that you don't care for, then definitionally um, genocide is good in that situation. Um, I mean, we, and, and we all recoil at that, and all of humanity does, because they understand there's something not quite right uh, about that. But under that system of ethics, it's only the goal that determines, determines what is right. Um, it, it has its flaws, um, especially in even saying, well, what goal is worthy to pursue in the first place? You can't get that from a teleological system of ethics. Um, deontological ethics. So your behavior is based upon certain duties. You have certain obligations, all right? So that is your child, Jim. So you are obligated to feed and clothe and uh, guide and parent and, you know, whatever else you do with, with kids. And basically those things, <laughs> basically those things yeah covers most of it. But, um, you know, so, but out of obligation, you know, you're obliged to do certain things. Okay. Um, the Bible certainly gives us uh, plenty of deontological ethics, right? We have obligations. I mean, look at the 10 commandments themselves. These are things we are obligated to do. <clears throat> but, um, then it becomes also an epistemological question of, 
Well, how do we even know what our, our obligations are? Um, and under different systems, you, you're gonna come up with different answers. Lastly, existential ethics. Um, you know, um, oftentimes this has to do with, uh, with being true to yourself. Um, the existential philosophers like Sartre or Camus or some of those guys or lots of Disney movies would say, follow your heart, um, you know, be true to yourself. If, if, if you are dealing with some sort of internal conflict, you're doing one thing, but you really want to be doing something else. Well, what you're doing must be wrong because it's not, you're not acting in accordance with your heart's desires in a way. Um, what we see in the Bible, and I'm glad AJ put this graphic in here, he switches, flip over to the next page, is this triangle. Because there are all three of these things that are involved in, an, in a biblical ethical system. I mean, most strongly we may think about duty, um, you know, because we, we have lots of commands in the Bible, um, and those are obligations. But um, there's a purpose also, so teleological, the purpose for these things we do to, to glorify God. Um, lastly, there is an existential or um, an ethic based on desires in some ways, in that we are called to have right desires. You know what I'm saying? So uh, God wants us to give uh, tithes and offerings to the church, but it's not good enough just to give. God wants us to give cheerfully, all right? We are commanded to serve God. That's really not good enough. We are commanded to serve God with a glad heart. So you see, all these things fit together, and, um, you know, this it was something... Uh, a way of looking at biblical ethics that I'd never really thought about before. And, and, you know, I'm a pretty duty driven person. If I have an obligation, I'm going to meet that obligation. If it's within my power to do so, but I may be grumbling about it the whole time. And I may uh, exhibit a very poor attitude in the way I do certain things. I'm going to get it done because that's my obligation but um, I may not do it with an appropriate uh, spirit toward the Lord. And in that, it's sin. It's still sin. I meet my obligations, but yet I do them in a way that God says is not appropriate. I've still broken God's commands in those ways. Um, so that was a really, a really neat thing that came out of this chapter um, that I saw. Any questions about that chapter? In particular, this is just a thought. Um, and I don't know how well it fits, but I think it fits. Just thinking about the three categories um, and thinking about the, the catechism, the first question and answer. Mm -hmm. um, it, it actually fits kind of all three pretty well. But it's like our chief end that has purpose. Purpose, so teleological. Right, is to glorify God. And that's maybe the purpose that's also we're commanded to do that. Mm -hmm. But then enjoy him forever. That's very existential of enjoying him in that. So I don't know. I just thought of that earlier. That's interesting. We see that in those three perspectives. 
Yeah, that's well, good. Yeah, this is very jumpy. <coughs> only thing that was trapped like that was <laughs> But I think it's very helpful to, to think in terms also how we can we use our philosophical discussion tonight to equip us, you know, point to the beginning. Because I know people in my life whom I love dearly, who I might work with in some of the work I do outside the church, who are duty drivers. Yes, they do. And and going and, and going back to some things that were discussed earlier, we are not necessarily captive then to our desires as they're found naturally within us or um, you know, our our wants. Um, because God commands us to be otherwise. So, you know, you find yourself uh, in a bad mood and saying, well, I have this obligation that I have to keep, but I really wish I hadn't said yes, and now I'm grumpy and grumbling about everything. Well, it's not just how you are, you know, change your attitude. <laughs> God, God commands us to do so. And, um, anyway. Chapter six, what are my rights? This is the first time I've ever seen this in sort of an introductory uh, philosophy book. Uh, what are my rights? And, and Dr. Frame puts a spin on it that I'd never really considered before um, either. Uh, rights, he says, uh, are what is owed to us by others. You ever think about your rights that way? Or do you ever think about discussions of rights in that way? You know, I mean, mostly what we do is we sit down and we say, I demand my rights, right? So, um, but in some ways what we're saying is I demand you to do certain things on my behalf or out of consideration for me um, or whatever else. And generally, you know, it kind of goes through the section. Um, generally, we're okay with certain things like you have a right to life and that's, that's pretty easy for me to oblige myself to you. That just means I don't have to murder you, right? I just kind of let you go. And even though you make me angry and I want to strangle you, you have a right to life, so I'm just going to let it go. So those are sort of passive in a lot of ways. But then he gets into, I mean, he talks about a small amount of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, written in the late 40s, I think it was. We get into some very active things then. Um, I have a right to a certain income. Okay, well, what you've done now is you've said, everyone else is obligated to make sure that I receive a certain income. Uh, you know, I have a right to a particular form of housing. 
I have a right to food. I have a right to education. Um, your rights or my rights don't stand alone from everyone else's obligations. And so the, the, the moment that we say we have particular rights, we're putting a yoke on someone else and saying, well, now you have particular obligations to me. And, um, you know, that's not, not necessarily something that we think about in a lot of ways is saying, you know, you, me claiming one right might actually be infringing on some right that you have. Um, and we, we see a lot of working out of this in, in society today, whose rights are going to stand ultimate um, eventually. So anyway, kind of a, kind of a neat thing. Um, a neat way to think about it. But then he goes on to talk about a biblical doctrine of rights. <clears throat> and this is where we get away from a more self-focused issue um, to a more others-focused issue in that we have obligations. So back to the how shall I live or the ethics chapter, you know, God gives us lots of obligations. And reciprocally, then those obligations are rights for others. You know, if it's, if, if I have a right not to covet my neighbor's, or if I have an obligation not to covet, covet my neighbor's stuff, then my neighbor must have a right to keep their stuff. Um, you know, they have a right to keep what's theirs or, or whatever else. And, um, you know, if, if I have an obligation not to commit adultery, well, then my spouse or someone else's spouse uh, has a right then to um, undefiled marriage, you know. And so mostly what we have in the Bible are, are obligations, but looking at them well, with the definition that Frame uses, we can easily turn them around and say, what is a, what is a biblical definition of rights? Lastly, how can I be saved? And remember, I started the talk with the idea that we all know something's wrong with the world. Like I said, I've yet to come across the single person who's like, eh, I probably wouldn't change anything. That's Good to me. <laughs> um, you know, even if it's just the weather, somebody's going to complain about, well, I was going to go fishing and now it's storming. And, uh, you know. um, so we all answer this question. I mean, biblically, uh, hopefully we know how, uh, biblically, how we, we answer this question. Our biggest problem is sin against um, eternally, and perfectly holy God, um, a debt that, that we cannot pay. And so Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, taken upon himself the penalty that was due to us, and also then giving us his covering of righteousness uh, for having completely fulfilled all of God's law and giving that to us, um, Jesus being the double cure or sin, as the hymn goes. Um, and so 
we understand that everything else flows out of that. No matter what else we may think is wrong with the world or whatever else we think may be changed or needs to be changed, the number one issue facing all of mankind is how are you going to satisfy God's wrath for having broken his law? And hopefully in any of the apologetics conversations that we have with people, eventually we get to that point of this, this is the ultimate issue here. Um, you know, all of scripture is a story of redemption. Um, and so for everything else that is in the Bible, um, all plays off of and or has to do with redemption in some way or another. And we see Christ woven in and out of all of the entire scriptures, you know, our Savior, the Messiah. And so even in our own minds, we need to keep this idea front and center. No matter how difficult times get in life and we get distracted by a lot of other things, we still have to understand that our biggest problem has been solved in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, it's really interesting when you look at some of the other religious systems or other philosophical systems as to, you know, how do we fix what's gone, what's gone wrong with the world and even how they define what is, what is or what has gone wrong with the world. Um, and their example of Buddhism, uh, non-being non is the best form of being. Uh, you know, our problem is, is that we have bought into this illusion of suffering, and so we need to escape this illusion of suffering and essentially become non-existent, absorbed into the one. And so non, almost, well, all, all of these things eventually break down into uh, nonsense. In, in some form or fashion. Um, but, you know, I mean, you talk to, to folks in various realms today, you know, the biggest problem facing, facing the world is um, a matter of justice being unequally applied in some arena. Um, and we can't, we can't flippantly just say, well, that's, that's not a problem. Um, certainly there are injustices in this world. Underneath that, though, is sin, the sin nature of man, and why God's justice is not, um, is not meted out appropriately. Anyway, that is the conclusion of the matter. And hopefully it's not really the conclusion of the matter. Hopefully, hopefully it's a springboard then to begin to think about Everything, you know, I mean, uh, you, it, it doesn't matter what you do or where you are, what your job is, um, how you spend your time, you're going to come across, like I said, these ideas. You cannot operate as a human being without having answers to these questions um, on a, on the, from the most basic level to the highest forms of abstract thought. You're going to have to answer these questions. And so my, my hope is that we'll all begin to think about these things uh, a little more, a little more carefully and um, consider them and be able to 
speak with others about these things. So remember, ask the questions why. Um, a good deal of people in here have raised a toddler. You ever get the why unending? Why this? Well, because why? Well, because this, why? Well, because this, why? Because I'm the parent and I said so. All right, eventually we appeal to this ultimate authority. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is a terrific tactic. You know, and if you've ever been pressed on your own beliefs or just someone asking you continuously, well, why is that? Or how do you know that? Or why this? Or, you know, pretty soon what you get down to are these basic questions, no matter what the problem was that started the whole thing. You know, and um, so, so my, my appeal is to don't take the problem at face value, you know, dig deeper and say, you know, what's the, what's the real problem here? I get, I get so very frustrated watching the interviews that happen on TV news and this, that, and the other. And, you know, it's just like no one goes ever below the surface at all and says, well, why is this a good idea? Uh, and what, on what authority and how do you know? Um, so it, it's, it's very frustrating in that sense. But um, so we have as much time as AJ wants to hang out and run the, run the IT equipment to ask questions or talk about things or whatever else. If anybody has anything that's still left over. Basically, he summarizes it at the bottom of page 33. Paul says here that one, God, the house of this God, has the rights to this world. Two, that God never nevertheless hates it. Had to have much patience in order to tolerate for a time. And three, that God knows what for good to those in power. I follow. Mm -hmm. I think. Okay. And then on the next page, he, uh, the second paragraph says that I was saying probably And then he goes over to give four examples two in Exodus, one in Deuteronomy, and so on. Here's where I'm, I'm missing something. Page 35, many of these deal with God, pardon me, Pharaoh's heart. It's also true that Pharaoh. Pardon his own. Sure. In the narrative, God's heart is clearly prior to where it is. Pardoning one's heart is a sin, but in Pharaoh's case, God may be happy to resolve the sin. I understand that. Having discussed God's dealing with Pharaoh, Paul summarizes, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wishes to have mercy, and pardons him, and holds the heart. Despite all this emphasis on God's 
is playing the favorite, not God, is to blame for his That's where I struggle. Well, it's not it's not an easy concept uh, to wrap your mind around, and uh, I think no matter how long you've been doing this, you you can find yourself vacillating between uh, various ideas and answers. Well, he he states it is plain, mm -hmm. and it should be obvious, right? To be, it's not. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, well, I wonder if he means by that. So we we I mean Pharaoh is a, is a is a good example, sort of a prime example in Scripture. There are other examples in Scripture. Um, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? That's from Lamentations. Um, you know, in Job, you'll see certain things as well that Job realizes that all things ultimately come from the hand of God, and so. Um, we have to be humble in that situation. Um, and even when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus himself, um, you know, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The most evil act in history, as, as we should see it. And... So there is a lot of difficulty there in, in thinking about those things. Um, again, I, I, I throw out the question of, we also have to make a decision about whether responsibility um, or accountability only happens within the realm of being free. Um, and, and, and I'll just tell you, my, my stance is God holds people accountable whom he decides to hold accountable um, for whatever acts he decides to hold them accountable, knowing then that God definitionally does only what is good. Um, and that's the best way that I can resolve it in my own mind. Um, the Confession of Faith, Chapter 3 of God's Decree. Um, is a is a helpful place to look, especially if you have um, uh, commentaries con concerning some of that. James Anderson, who was, I think, a um, student of Frames, um, has a has a pretty good lecture slash sermon uh, about Calvinism and the origin of evil, which is um, really a pretty neat neat way of looking at it that I haven't hadn't necessarily thought of before, but God as an, as an author of a book, we don't necessarily um, 
hold uh, Tolkien, for example, we don't hold him responsible for what Gollum does. Um, you know, nor would we say, oh, Tolkien's this evil guy. You know, look what Gollum did. Um, and we don't accuse him of doing the things that Gollum did in the books. Um, yet he has complete control and authority over that character, um, in a sense. The problem with the, the Pharaoh's harmony, I think Spoil actually explains it by, by taking Augustine. Is it, is it like a negative, negative, right? Uh, positive, positive, right? Not actively creating evil, but just lets evil runs its course that is already there in the Pharaoh's heart. I can't doubt that what you're talking about. <laughs> A long, long time of not being able to make that work. But yeah, I think what what I really just kind of God eventually let me see was that I'm looking at it from my worldly perspective that I couldn't make that work because I am human. You know, like like you were saying at the beginning, what God does is good. But if from there down, well, God did it. So who am I to question? And, and but I kept, you know, I just kept saying, that makes sense. But I mean, really, I'm thinking of it from like an earthly, worldly, justice, people, you know, fairness kind of thing. And that didn't. It's not exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I just I struggled with that for a long time. Um, but First Kings 22, 19 to 22 is another passage. Um, that similarly um, make, yeah, you might look up at some point, but it is another example of the same kind of thing. There's the next one, which you're like, but it seems like he's calling that, you know, but he's really not the author of the thing. Just, he doesn't seem to be. I think, uh, I mean, when it says it explains a few bits of the part of the dead part. That's what I do not know what John Frey means by that, but I would say, try to imagine if you were there watching Pharaoh do these things. I don't think any of us would say, well, look at what he's doing today. Like, well, maybe we would, but we see, we see in the world around us that side. We see that, but we learn that most explicitly in scripture. That he has mercy on But I know in, in my experience of everyday life, the person who's been doing it is the one that I see standing next to, and I see their heart. So, Pharaoh is the one who did that. I think when we read it as a story, but that it actually really happened too. That if you think of something going on in our present day, it is actually really happening. That person is held culpable for that sin. And I don't know if that's a lot framing by that, but if we were in certain circumstances, it would be very plain that Pharaoh is the one ordering the killing of this or the doing of this. Mm -hmm. So, and they're ultimately held culpable because God says they are. And I think that that's that tension. And I think about there for a long time too. The idea that 
ultimately, I have to look out for as well as And if it says it, then it's if I'm disagreeing with it, then I have to look at the not to make them disagree. And that even is something God does to our hearts. He makes us believe it. But but it, it's not the only thing in scripture that we don't have full access to. I mean, God spoke the universe into being. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we look at things and we see, well, we know how you make something like this and you do it like this and there are steps and there are this and that. I mean, how does God speak and something happens? I don't know for sure. On this issue, or on does God create unbelief? Maybe we have even answered that. Hmm. It's um, again, like I said, this is something that folks have been struggling with for millennia. Um, I don't expect we're going to have a full answer for it tonight either. But um, we systematize the point of either the book of the but I think the joy of this particular concept and struggle and scripture is in different places in the Bible the issue of man's responsibility, man's freedom, God's sovereignty is presented differently. And the scriptures in that particular text don't always ask us to have a systematic debate with what's being said in the text. Right? So Acts 13 48, all those who are being to believe, believe. That's what it says. The text wants us to realize. Natural man will not turn his heart to God when the gospel presented to the Holy Spirit. So that's Acts 13 48. But when Joshua, you know, stood with the people and said, Hey, choose who this, this day who you're going to serve. Go to Joshua 24, you're not going to find any part of the text that's saying, Let's talk about how choice works. <laughs> God's going to sovereign or to choose or, or, or not. The text doesn't make us battle that out. So my encouragement to you, or anybody else, is. Is obviously systematically, I think the scriptures are presented in a pretty potent place that we're talking about. God is actually sovereign and being responsible for At the same time, in the ways it's presented to us, receive it the way the scriptures presented to us in that text. And if it says choose who you will serve, it means you're responsible if you don't choose to serve the living God. And that's a helpful way to see that scripture doesn't leave us holding. There's a point in each text that says this has been great. I'm very thankful. I want to thank you. I cannot tell you all. We'll use this in the future the recording, but the blessing of the church has been slowly in the years. Say let's start thinking about those that are in different circles. They will have a clue that is going to be very potent out to you. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm not trying to shut the night Well, since Pastor Jim shut the night down, I guess we can uh, <laughs> stop now. I'll just add a couple of things. Uh, mm -hmm. Thinking about Paul, what Paul says, the I think, I mean, he, he's anticipating that we're having the questions that you're talking about. So it's not like, right. I, I think that in a lot of ways, like, that's the right question. Like it, we should not. We shouldn't be like, oh yeah, like that's really easy. How God sovereignly made like that suit. Bobby, you know, like I think when we're confronted with it, like it, Paul is basically kind of saying, like, you should kind of have these questions. Like that's natural in a lot of ways. You, 
we're finite. We don't have God's mind. We can't see it all. So there's there's something bright about it. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But just because it isn't now, it may be. You know, it may still be at some point. Like there are times where it's in scripture where you're like, Uh, yeah. Um, having having questions is is appropriate, and if the Bible really is infallible, um, we're going to find that it holds up to all the questions that we can bring to it. And um, you know, sometimes in questioning those things and trying to work them out and and you know, see how does all this fit together. Ultimately, hopefully, we, we come through the other side of those things with a stronger faith than we had before. Um, you know, so I, I think it's a, I think that's one of the greatest disservices we do sometimes is tell people, ah, don't ask that question. You know, we don't talk about those things around here. Um, you know, we should, we should welcome questions and, and be able to try to try to find an answer to them as, as best we can. Infallible, and we are not just going to be the launching pad for questions, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, most do not meet without some head scratching. Mm-hmm. All right. Is that it? Cool. <laughs>